I'm going to ask you to all, if you would, open up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy. I realize I've been gone for the last couple Sundays, but I've been preaching um, from Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, and now we're in chapter 2, we're in the latter part of chapter 2, so I'm going to be reading from that to you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I think I should begin probably, in order to get a full sentence, I think I should probably begin with... Yes, Paul's speaking to men and he's speaking to women about worship. He said in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness and with good works. Now I begin in verses 11 to 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this portion of your word, I ask that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning I began the first of two sermons on this, clearly the most controversial text in the pastoral epistles, in Paul's letters to Timothy, the two letters, and in his letter to Titus. Uh, Clearly this is the most controversial passage. Tremendous bait, debate continues over how to interpret these verses, and, uh, and I think that's very worthwhile because I think a lot is at stake in, uh, in how we respond to what Paul has said. So this morning, uh, because this is going to be two sermons, this morning what I want to do is lay some groundwork, and uh, then I'm going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 with you. And uh, this is where Paul prohibits women from teaching or exercising authority over men. And uh, as I preach the message and the aftermath of the message, you think about it, pray about it, reflect about it, talk about it. I hope that you'll feel free to respond to me with emails or text messages or whatnot. I'd love to hear back from you, and I'll try to integrate some of that um, in, my, in my message last week. Um, but then, next week... Uh, I'll be preaching on verses 13, 14, and 15, where Paul actually gives the basis and the foundation for his teaching. And I do think that that will make uh, much more clear and compelling uh, what he's saying here. But let me begin with verses 11 and 12, and even before delving into those verses, I want to just begin with some observations. Um, This may seem very obvious, but the chief reason this instruction in Paul's epistle to Timothy is so controversial is not because it is unclear, though there are parts that are hard to interpret, they are unclear, but the chief reason for controversy is not in regard to parts that are unclear, it's because of that part that is very, very clear and that Paul is limiting the scope of women's ministry in the church. It raises strong objections and for the sake of equality and justice in society, social justice, Many women and men today are fighting throughout the world to expand opportunities and roles for women in areas of education and work 
that have been denied to them and reserved exclusively for men. And many of the people who are fighting throughout the world for this are Christians, and they're acting out of their Christian convictions. It is a matter of justice. Pure prejudice uh, has excluded women, as just simply as an example, has excluded women from becoming doctors. And what does gender have to do with performing an eye examination or open-heart surgery? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Paul's restriction on women in teaching or leading men, however broadly you construe it or however narrowly you construe it, strikes many as oppressive because it is a restriction. Even in churches that teach that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, it's profitable, all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Even in many churches that affirm the historic view of biblical inspiration. And regrettably, I have to say there's more to it. And that is to say that in the church, there is a long history of biblical interpretation involving these verses, which construe Paul's words, particularly where he says, um, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived, to construe these words to say that what Paul is, is teaching here is that there is a fundamental defect in women that is absent from men. It was the woman who was deceived, not the man who was deceived. Um, and so the conclusion has been drawn many, 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 many times through the course of church history that women are more gullible, that as uh, Thomas Aquinas put it, that they are weaker and less rational, and what's more, they are very poor car drivers. Well, how do you respond to all of this? One of the widespread responses among many churches has been to overthrow Paul's instruction altogether. To say that Paul was the product of his times, who couldn't get beyond his own prejudice, his sexism, or even worse, that he was personally a misogynist, he hated women, he didn't like women. And of course, if that's your conclusion, and that's what you're going to draw because you don't like what is written here, then obviously then uh, the Bible is in error because First Timothy is part of Scripture. The Bible is in error. All Scripture is not profitable. And of course, Paul, Paul's teaching and the teaching, I think, of whole Scripture is that because Scripture is God-breathed, all of it is profitable. And so really the very doctrine of Scripture is at stake very often. Well, anyway, the protest and the rejection of Paul has led not only to the intended ripple effect, which has been to ordain women as elders and preachers over congregations, but it has also led to a revolutionary tidal wave. A revolutionary tidal wave. Now, the ordination of male and female homosexual clergy. In England this past May, Anglican bishops from one of the dioceses launched a drive to encourage transgender people to become clergy. And although we could spend time and analyze that this morning, I'm not going to, I would just simply say that once an individual or once a church concludes that Scripture is no longer fully reliable, it has cut itself adrift. And you know, when a boat is adrift, you don't know it's adrift until you realize you're so far from your moorings that you may not even be able to get back. Well, my purpose here today and next Sunday isn't to refute 
the negative characterizations of this text or of Paul. And my purpose isn't to defend the traditional interpretations of the text. My purpose is to underscore what Paul did say and why it is important and vital today. I have made that observation. I want to make another observation. I want you to consider with me the character of this particular epistle as a whole. In other words, I want you to think about the context in which Paul is writing this. Paul names the purpose and the significance of his instruction in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. And this is the way he put it. He said, I hope, talking to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave or how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support or buttress of the truth. Paul's whole frame of reference is that the church is God's household, God's family. And at Ephesus, God's God's house, his household was in disarray, beginning with men who were misleading others by their teaching. The gospel that Paul had taught was being distorted. And further, the man that he had installed as a pastor was being challenged. So within the church, both truth and authority were under attack. Those who knew better, beginning with Timothy himself, were stressed out. They were beginning to waver over this. So Paul writes in order to restore order on both counts, truth and authority. And to that end, he asserts his authority again and again as he writes this epistle using the first person I, 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 as an apostle. And then he teaches also, at the same time he asserts his authority, he's teaching truth. And he's teaching it in a way that's very pointed. And some of it you may even find abrasive. And then what's more, he admonishes Timothy in chapter 4.11, he admonishes Timothy to command and teach these things. And then in chapter 6, verse 2, to teach and urge these things. Toward the end of the letter, he underscores that what he has written is Christ's truth. It's consistent with the gospel. It's consistent with Christ. He says in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, toward the conclusion then, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So Paul will give no ground on what he's taught at all. And one of those places where he writes with authority in the first person is in our verse 12. When he writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he is not simply saying how he feels. He is not simply expressing an opinion that Timothy is free to disregard. What he's saying is that regardless of what others may say, regardless of what others permit, regardless of what's happening in your work in the way of practice, I don't permit it. He's saying no. Similarly, if you go back a couple of verses to verse 8, where Paul writes, I desire that men in every place lift holy hands without 
wrath and without dissension, when he says, I desire, he's not saying, I, I have a suggestion for you. You can take it or leave it. No wrath and dissension. What do you think? Take it, leave it. It's just a thought. That's not what he's saying. Even when he uses this weaker verb, desire. I desire it has apostolic authority behind it. Well, let's move on then. We talked a little bit about the nature of the controversy around the verses. We talked a little bit about the context brought more broadly of 1 Timothy and how it fits in with what uh, Paul is doing overall here. But I want to move on then, if it's all right, to the content of his admonition, beginning with verse 11. He writes in the imperative voice, which is the voice of command. He says, let a woman learn quietly, or literally in quietness, with all submissiveness. Paul lays down here quietness and submissiveness as the standards for women learning God's truth. And I hope it doesn't surprise you. I certainly hope it doesn't offend you. Because this is the same standard that holds true for men. Which is why, three verses earlier, Paul rebukes men who worship the Lord with anger and with, with quarreling. He says, do this without anger and without quarreling. Because those things are the very opposite of quietness. Quietness characterizes the life of every Christian, or at least is to characterize the life of every Christian. Nine verses earlier in 1 Timothy 2, he gave as a reason for praying God's blessing on all people. Hear this constellation of related terms. This is the reason he gives for us praying for all people, all in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, in every way. Now these are all mutual, uh, mutual modifiers. Peacefulness, quietness, godliness, and dignity. That's what every Christian should desire. And when it comes to truth, or when it comes to authority that God has ordained, submission is to characterize every Christian. Paul is not applying a double standard at all. And really, verse 11 is an introduction into verse 12 where Paul now becomes very pointed. He says, I do not permit a woman, he speaks in the singular because he's speaking principally here, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. I want to make a couple comments about this. The first is that Paul is repeating much of the same idea that he had written years earlier when he wrote to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 and 30 to 36. In those verses also, the context was worship. And in those verses also, the matter was authoritative instruction or revelation to the congregation. And there he wrote, As in all the churches of the saints, women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And this is greatly significant to our understanding of 1 Timothy. Why? The fact that Paul would say something very similar to another church, and in saying that very similar thing to another church, point out that this is the way it is in all the churches, that tells us that Paul's words in Timothy were not only for the church at Ephesus. They were not simply for that church and that time for the problems that it happened to have when he sat down to write this letter. 
The church had problems. Involved men. Problems involved women. Involved false teaching. It involved the rejection of legitimate authority. It's not all described in detail for us in this letter. We do understand those are all components. But the point is, Paul isn't coming up with this, in, coming up with this instruction simply to address that occasion. This is instruction for all the churches. Well, Paul's words, as I read verse 12, may seem short to you, they're short to me. It may seem abrasive to you. I think they're certainly abrupt. And I would simply say in response to that, that Paul obviously felt that the disarray at Ephesus called for this. The content of what he said certainly is for all of us. But the question then is, if Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to lead men, how, how are we to take that? Let me just put it a little bit differently. How far are we to take Paul's words? His statement is terse. His statement is unqualified. Does that mean that it applies to any teaching and any leading of any men under any circumstances? And my answer is no. No, not at all. The text itself, not that verse, but the verse is not stand by itself. The context has a number of qualifiers. Paul is not talking about baking cake. And he's not talking about neurosurgery. In his letters to pastors Timothy and to Titus, every time Paul uses the noun or verb for teach, it refers to the gospel, which includes all scripture. That's what teaching refers to. In fact, teaching is often translated, it may be in your ESV version, I believe it is, I'm not sure, but in some translations, it's simply translated, teaching is translated as doctrine. And further, as to circumstance, let me return to 1 Timothy 4, 3, 14 and 15. Paul is ordering life within the church. This is how we conduct life in God's household. This is how we conduct ourselves when a family comes together. And the occasion may not be exclusively, but it is, it is preeminently our public worship. Apart from that, what do we see in Scripture? Well, in Acts 18.26, Luke tells us that when Priscilla and Aquila, that's wife and husband, heard Apollos teaching, they took him aside, which means privately, I assume, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. You hear that? Priscilla, who's named first every time, in, uh, every time Priscilla and Aquila are referred to, the wife is named first, which is unusual. Priscilla, with her husband and her husband, taught Aquila. But they did it privately. They did it together. They did it off to the side. We see that. Aside from preaching or teaching, we know from Corinthians, there was no restriction on women praying in public as part of worship. There's no restriction on women prophesying in public as part of worship. And although many books have been written on what it means to prophesy, it at the very least encompasses uh, the presentation and uh, the unfolding or the, or the reading uh, or stating of God's word. And I would just say, if you don't mind here, as an aside for a moment, uh, I can't begin to say how much I have learned, how much wisdom and insight I've gained from you 
my brothers and sisters in Christ at Atonement over the years. Sometimes it's because uh, we have been um, sitting and talking off to the side. Sometimes it's because I've heard what you say in Sunday school class or in some other setting. And I know that's going to continue, and I appreciate it. And I thank you very much for it. Now, when we think about leading men, I don't allow women to teach or lead men. Again, I would say to you, I think that the context is the spiritual formation and spiritual development of men. It is the discipling of men. And that includes, that happens on Sunday morning in worship. It happens in other contexts as well. And this idea of spiritual formation and development of men, teaching men, includes the idea, as I say, of discipling. It also includes the idea of disciplining, both discipling in a positive, disciplining in a negative sense, men, correcting them. Paul says, I don't allow women, I don't permit women to teach or lead men. He's not denying that God gives women teaching gifts. They are to mentor, to teach each other, to teach their children. What he is denying is that God calls women to exercise spiritual authority over men. He's absolutely denying that. He's saying that is not true. I don't understand Paul to be circumscribing women's leadership in other respects. I want to tell you a story about that, I thought. After coming to Atonement in the mid-1990s, some of you remember that. It was just before the Great Extinction. Um, Alta Wallington was serving as an administrative assistant here in our church office. She had so many uh, gifts. She was so capable and so devoted, and her gifts included leadership gifts, that we reconfigured her job description and expanded her responsibilities, and uh, we dropped. I I see John here. I don't know if Alta's here. Uh, And so we dropped the name assistant from her job description, and so now her title involved administrator. At that time, it was in 1995 or so, Several elders took me aside, and they were very upset because of what I had done. Because this meant, they told me, that a woman, Alta, would have authority over men in the church. Well, I simply observed from my point of view that Alta continued her calling, and today she's leading our campus revitalization 2020, which is great, because there's no man in this church that begins to have the gifts that she has in order to see that accomplished. And sadly, and I say this, I grieve this to this day, those elders left the church. They were good men. I cared for them very much. They were faithful men. But on this, I really believe that they were wrong. And over the last 24 years, I can't tell you how many times I've had those kind of private conversations with people. Not only about this, but about other matters as well. What's the significance of this? And I would say to you that it's too easy to minimize or dismiss instruction from the Bible that we find offensive. It's too easy for us to minimize or dismiss instruction from the Bible that others find offensive, and we don't want to be associated because it embarrasses us. But in the same way, it's too easy to overreach the intent of Scripture and to claim its support for our prejudices, what is culturally ingrained in us, uh, our, personal, our personal concerns. I want to say that no matter what 
facade or posture we take toward others and as we live to defend ourselves in order to survive emotionally and interpersonally in this world. We're always to come before the Lord with an open heart. And that means coming to the Word with a heart that's open to instruction and open to reform. Well, that's my comments on verses 11 and on verse 12. And next week, we're going to examine the basis that Paul gives us for why he wrote as he did and why it mattered so much. Well, let's pray. Father, I love you, and I thank you so much for this portion of your word. I think I felt this week what others said to me. <laughs> that this passage was a, what? A sticky wicket, uh, whatever. Yes, a minefield. But Lord, your word really is not a minefield. Not at all. It's honestly not. Uh, you reveal truth to us. And then you explain it. You don't necessarily expect us to get it or to accept it uh, simply a priori. Because we don't, we don't come from the kingdom of God. We've been called into the kingdom of God. Uh, we didn't begin with a spirit. We were born in death. But now we have been given the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would use this time to be instructing us not only as individuals, but as a church. Because we are the household of God. And we have been called to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And I do pray and thank you so much for this time. I love my brothers and sisters. I thank you for them. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.